Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Portico Church, Arlington. My name's Jason. It is my privilege, and that's a high privilege, to open up the Word of God with you. Hey, if you're joining us from home in pajama land out there, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. But grab your Bible. We're going to Nehemiah today. Um, everybody here read Lord of the Rings? Hmm. I'm going to have to change. Okay, good. Awesome. Thank you. If you haven't, it's just, I, I love it. J.R.R. Tolkien, great, just epic. And I think one of the reasons it speaks so well to us is because, even though it was written a long time ago, is it understands where we are and understands where our hearts are. And specifically, it understands how we respond to times of darkness. Let me read a quote for you. And this is right out of Book One, Chapter Two. And the concept here, the idea here is Frodo, who's the main protagonist, he's having a conversation with Gandalf, who's the wizard, and he's really lamenting the fact that this ring of power has been found, and it's meant to oppress Middle-earth and to keep them in subjugation, and Sauron's like back all of a sudden, and they, he basically evil's advancing in a way that it's very obvious that they can do absolutely nothing about it. And if you know a hobbit, a hobbit just wants to have fun and enjoy life. They just want to be left alone. They want to smoke their pipes. They just want to have fun. They want to eat, right? They eat like 17 times a day. And so they're the wrong people to be bothered by evil. So Frodo says this. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. How many times have you said this in the last year? I wish it need not have happened in my time. I don't want this. I'm tired of the rules changing constantly. I'm tired of the foundation shifting every week. I'm tired of having everything that I want to be a part of torn down and shattered into pieces. So we have a decision to make. Gandalf knew it. Frodo would find it out later. We can either wait for the past to return, or we can actually work for the future that God has for us. The future that, honestly, if you're trusting in him, that you actually want. One of the reasons I pulled that quote is because it's great. I love it. The same thing happens in Nehemiah 1. Now, did you know that Gandalf shows up in the Bible? I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Don't fire me. <laughs> the point is Nehemiah has a choice to make. Is he going to take full responsibility for the future that he sees that he hates and use his giftings and his skills and just put himself out there for God's glory? Or is he going to retreat and just keep living a life in captivity, in bondage, but comfortable? So this is where this story goes. A few things I want you to know about Nehemiah as we walk through this in the next 10 weeks. It's a great leadership manual. It's, there is no better leader, maybe Josiah, but Nehemiah is great. So if you're going to read a leadership book in 2021, here it is. 
You're welcome. It's great. But it also some things that it goes into that we just don't see the Bible deal with much is it draws a hard line between God's providence or his sovereignty and Nehemiah's planning and the tension that holds that together is prayer. Because we, we don't like to live in that world. Either God's sovereign and I just can't do anything about it or I'm sovereign so my prayers make my will happen and my goal is to have God just baptize my agenda through my prayer. Or is there a third way? There really is. Nehemiah plans, he gets it done, but he prays and he depends on God's sovereignty in that. So I love that. So watch that. It's just a great leadership manual. And the essence of what I want us to walk out of here with, within this time in Nehemiah, is I want us to know as Christians what matters for the moment and what matters for all of eternity. Because I'm going to be honest with you, you're wasting a lot of time. And I know it's shock and awe, and I know that things have changed. I know there's great division in our country. I know there's a pandemic raging. And I know that you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Can we say that? We know that. We don't know what's going to happen. So let's take full responsibility for the future that God has placed in front of us. Let's do that. This is the call of Nehemiah. This is where the text is going to go today. So what we'll do is I'm going to read the text, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I'll kind of, kind of pseudo-narrate it so we kind of have a little bit of orientation to what we're talking about, and then we're going to walk through the text in three movements. First, I want to orient you to the story. We need to understand the story, almost like Frodo really thought the story of his life was that he was just going to enjoy life in, in the Shire, and then that blew up. So he had to understand the story before he could orient his life to it. Secondly, uh, we're going to understand our own heart. So Nehemiah has a heart posture that changes everything, and it probably comes, well, it doesn't, it comes over time. And lastly, we want to look at this prayer, because there's a prayer here that Nehemiah prays that is instructive for what it means to just take full responsibility for your future, right? So let's walk through that. I'm going to read us chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And just the context is, this is Nehemiah. He's in captivity in Susa. He's born into captivity, right? We know about exile. He's one of the kids of the exile, probably single. Um, and it's, <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's really just kind of enjoying exile, if I can tell you that. It's not working out badly for him. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, and that's basically in western Iran. Persia had world power at that time. That Hanani, one of my brothers, that's his blood brother, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. So uh, basically an envoy comes back from Jerusalem. One of them is his brother and his brother's like, no, things are destroyed there. There's always been two phases of exiles go back into Jerusalem. So he's expecting things to be good. And he gets the report and it's like, oh no, it's a disaster. Like the wall's broken down, the gates aren't working. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heavens. If you hear nothing else, hear the posture of his heart. It's broken. That the word, he didn't just sit around it. He didn't think about it. He, he is broken. He drops right there. And I said, O Lord, God of heavens, here's his prayer. 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Note in the first part of this prayer, he takes responsibility for everything. He's not saying, oh, I hate exile because you did it to... No, he understands that the broken relationship and the judgment that they are experiencing came from sin. And he takes ownership for his own sin, his own household, his father's household, and most importantly, corporately. He repents for all of Israel. Verse verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, now I want you to tell you, he's quoting Deuteronomy here in Leviticus 26, probably Deuteronomy 30. He's quoting it straight out. So he's basically holding God accountable to the covenant. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and you do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is about God's glory. He understands that God's name carries with it all the character of God, all his promises, and gives him access to everything he needs. There are your servants and your, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success, he asks for it, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, that's the king of Persia. Tagline, now I was cupbearer to the king. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. It's stunning and staggering how beautiful and power and diverse is the literature that is the word of God that you use to lead and love and correct and rebuke and build up your people. So we come before you in great need today and we ask as your servants, we will mirror this language as your servants by your will, by your power, Lord, would you please open up this word that we might behold its beauty and its treasure and forever be changed in the name of Jesus. Amen. Wow, that was a prayer. That shows you his heart, his story, and his prayer. So let's walk through that together. So take full responsibility for the future. This is exactly what Nehemiah did. Now, it ain't going to go well. There's going to be hard things that happen in Nehemiah, but this is what he's doing. So I want you to understand the story that Nehemiah understands. It's the whole book of the Bible. So one of the problems in the Lord of the Rings is that Frodo and Samwise, they were living an awesome story. Like, do you want to live in the Shire? Don't lie. You would move there today if you could afford it. And even knew where it was. So everybody wants to live in the Shire. So his life was about having a good time, maximizing joy and pleasure, and just having a great life. Why? I want that. But there's a bigger arc in this book. So if you understand the story that you're taking full responsibility for, it goes much deeper and much higher than the story that we tend to want to live out. Here's the story of the Bible. Creation, you were meant 
You were created, rather, to be in a love-trust relationship with God. Creation, fall. Because of sin, because as we wanted to define good on our own terms, that is sin. You see it in Genesis 3. It is the fall. It fractures your relationship with the living God forever. Uh, And so that's what happens. And so what you're created to be is no longer possible. And then redemption which comes forward under the hand of God and is epitomized in the person of Jesus Christ, the new creation, the one that became slain for us, taking on the weight of our sin and overcoming it, and then new creation. So creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's the storyline of the Bible. It runs from Genesis to Revelation, and God is accomplishing it right now here in this room, even in the reading of his word. So that's the arc of the story. If you think that you're being swept up into something else, you're, you're, it's not true. <laughs> How do I say that nicely? We want our own story. And so our prayers are about God baptizing our agenda. And we feel stiffed many times because of the season we live in, and it's turned to ashes, quite frankly. So understand that. This is the story God is working. And the plot that he has going on in here, well, you know, we talked about covenant. It's a binding promise for the purpose of relationship. God basically just gives a pinprick of light in Genesis 3.15. Hey, the seed of the woman... He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Wow. Yeah, you're going to get out of my garden because you've broke relationship. But there will come one who will redeem. It's like a pinprick of light. Fast forward, Genesis 12. I make my covenant with Abraham. Call him out of Ur. I will make you a family. I will make you a great name, and you will bless all the families on the earth. Fast forward a thousand years later, right? About a thousand B.C. We see the monarchy of Israel stand up. We've got Saul, we've got David, we've got Solomon. Israel's powerful. They've got kings. Man, God is blessing them. They're kind of like a world power. People are coming to them now, but it doesn't last long, does it? Solomon dies. Nobody really wants to follow his son, Rehoboam. And so 10 of the tribes leave and they go up towards Samaria in the north. Old Testament calls them Israel now. And two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay by the temple under the leadership of Solomon's son. And you have a divided kingdom. And then they all just seek to find their own glory and their own protection. They make covenants and treaties with foreign countries. And they start worshiping other gods. You're like, that's impossible. It's there. And we do it too. And it just falls apart. So what happens? 722, God judges them. The northern kingdom is destroyed. Assyria, which is basically northern Iraq, which was in power at that time, just destroyed them. 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the southern kingdom, right? We've been learning this. Takes them all captivity into Babylon. This is the plot. If you were to read this Bible, every three or four chapters, everything falls apart. Oh, well, it's not going to work now. There's no more in Israel. Where's God's promise? I don't know. First of all, they hate each other. They have a divided kingdom. Some of them are up in, you know, around Damascus, and some of them are out in Persia. I don't know. There's no temple. It's gone. So that is the plot. Nehemiah is born into this. And here's what happened. It's happened since he's been born. Cyrus has come into power. He's the Persian leader. 
And God worked in, we learn in 2 Chronicles, God works in Cyrus's heart to send some exiles back. Why? I don't know. Because God, this is his plan. And so Zerubbabel, if you read Ezra, goes back and he basically takes some exiles back and he tries to reestablish the temple. And he gets it up, right? 515. And then in 458 BC, Ezra goes back. And by the way, your Bible is organized so that Ezra and Nehemiah go together. The Hebrew Bible does that. It's one book. So it's like a prequel, Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra goes back in 458. He tries to restore true worship. And then about 14 years later, Nehemiah goes back. And so we're going to read that story and see what happens. Here's what you're going to see over and over and over. The themes are returning to Jerusalem, where God names resides. We're going to rebuild it, and we're going to restore true worship. That happens with Ezra, and that happens with Nehemiah. With Ezra, it's really, the, the wall rebuilding doesn't go too well, but he tries to restore true worship because he is a priest. I mean, not really a priest, but he's a teacher of the law. He knows it, and he teaches the people. Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the wall and to re basically rebuild the people. Opposition, opposition, opposition. So what, one of the things I love about Nehemiah, get ready for this, it's like a prayer journal. It's almost like a travel log. Nehemiah just takes, like he writes down his travels or whoever's recording it. It's like a prayer journal and it's gritty. We've heard it. And it's like a memoir. So it's a different type of genre than we're used to, but that's what we're going to get into. Let me ask you this, Frodo. What story are you living in? What story are you fighting for? Because if we're going to take full responsibility for the future God's put in front of us that we actually didn't want, it didn't ask for, do, are you trying to find the Shire here? I, I'm just going to tell you, it might take a long time, like maybe until Jesus comes back. So if, you're, if you're, the story that you want is the Shire, if you want Middle Earth, if you just want to be left alone and to have a decent, good life, then the gospel's not for you. Jesus did not die to give that to you right now. He died to save you and to bring you glory in a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be rough many times here. So own that. Know your story. Secondly, let's check the heart posture of Nehemiah. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, well, the heart is the motivational structure of your entire life. It's why you do what you do. Your head can lie to you, but your heart is like, no, nah, no. Nah. You will say you're going to do things, but you won't do it because your heart's like, I don't want that right? Uh, it, it is the motivational structure of your life, and the Bible knows that, and what we love matters most. So what we see in this prayer is what breaks your heart reveals your heart. So the very thing that you are just broken about most is what you count on most and what you want to see most. So you see in Nehemiah, when he gets this report from his brothers, he's broken down. And it's not just because of our homeland. He knows that God's purposes necessarily go through Jerusalem. Well, isn't that changed? No, read Revelation. The new heavens and the new earth has the new Jerusalem in it. So God's name is there. It's important. It matters both locally and eternally. And he understands God's purposes will not go forward without God's people back in Jerusalem. And so he's broken about that. So what breaks your heart? Let's just do a little test. You don't have to write it down or raise your hand, but I want you to understand where your heart is. You need to understand the posture of your heart, and it kind of flows out of what, what breaks it. So we've got some big football games coming up this weekend, right? Um, 
I said this in the beginning, and some people asked me why, but I'm just going to say this out loud. If you love the Green Bay Packers, <laughs> my bride's here. Half my family just is an idolatry over them. Um, if you love them, and they lose, I'm not a prophet, and they lose, I mean, I, sometimes people go into a three-month depression over that. <laughs> right? I'm just going to throw that out there. Sometimes when our sports teams don't win, we don't know how to go on. It sounds silly, but it's true. We gather in stadiums like it's a worship service, like it's... What breaks your heart? Let me ask you this. Are you more broken up because our capital was attacked? Or maybe more broken because some people that did that thought they were actually carrying out the will of God? Are you more broken because we're politically divided? Or are you more broken about the lives that stand behind that and these broken lives that are looking for a true king? And for some, it ends up in violence. Does that break you? Or you just need to be right in this? And you need to check that. Do people at your work know more about your politics than your God? Man, this is full of broken people, friends. We are a divided nation politically, racially, in every way. I didn't want that. Do you want that? Where's our brokenness in that? Are we broken because I just wanted a good political system that works? Or am I broken because what stands behind these broken things are broken people? And how we engage that is what God wants. We, he wants us to be broken for the things that he is broken for. So these broken walls here in Jerusalem, they represent a broken people. A people that have ongoing opposition, very little investment in the purpose of God going on in Jerusalem. And they're scared. Who can't relate to that? So Nehemiah's heart breaks. His name means comfort, by the way. God comforts. And he's probably going to be the most uncomfortable person in this book. God will use him because he has a holy ambition to see God's plans go out above his desires. And he knows God's name is where he is. All the access he needs in life is right in that name, and God has given it to him and to all that trust him. So where is your heart? Where is your heart? Um, I just want to show you this. I think I mentioned it, but see the very end the way it's positioned matters. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Why did Nehemiah put that at the very end? Well, it's a transition to the next chapter, but do you know what a cupbearer is? Anybody here a cupbearer? You're not. Okay. So a cupbearer is like the best job in the kingdom. You had to be the most trustworthy person in the kingdom. I'm pretty sure Nehemiah took Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 29 of Jeremiah right, to seek the welfare of the city. He did that well in uh, Susa there, and he was, rose the ranks. So what is a cupbearer? You're part sommelier, right? You choose the wine. You have to drink it first. Oh, poor me, because we want to make sure the king's not poisoned. You usually have to taste the food first, and depending on where you were, you might be like the chief of staff, the head of security. Like, you are in the know. Nobody is a cupbearer in these ancient Near East countries that didn't have absolute confidence of the king because you were sometimes the first and last line of defense to keep him protected. 
And you are a little bit of a lobbyist, too, because if they wanted the king's ear, it was going to go through the cupbearer. So he had a good job. I mean, I've, I've looked for it. I'm monster or ND. It's not there. It's not there. His this is how I would have started the letter. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's just get that straight up front. You know what he says seven times in his prayer? Servant, your servant. Israel's your servant. I'm your servant. Oh, I work for that man, but you're my king, God. Nehemiah wants you to see that. His identity is wrapped up. His heart is wrapped up in being a servant. So the question is right there. Here's the question the text is asking you. This prayer is asking you. Who's the Lord for you? What breaks your heart? Who is your Lord? Who is your king? Is your identity wrapped up in what you do and what you can do and what you can do to bring about what you want to bring about? Or are you primarily and essentially and especially a servant of the living God. That's where he was. So taking full responsibility for your future, for my future, you have to understand the story you're in. It's God's story. If you want to understand your story, if you want us to make sense of your story, you have to understand it's not your story. It's his. All right? And secondly, who is your Lord? God is always asking that. So let's look at God's or not God's, Nehemiah's prayer here to God. Uh, it's so good. So how do you take full responsibility for the future? It starts with prayer. Do you expect me to say that as a pastor? You're like, okay, pencils down. Uh, pray. <laughs> Dude, we're missing it. You know how fantastic this is? Nehemiah accomplished more than 52 days on his journey from the Persian Gulf to Jerusalem. And when he got there, 52 days, he accomplished more than 52 days you're ever going to accomplish in your life. Believe me, he's a better leader than you are. He's more gifted than you are, and watch what he does. Now note this. He gets the report and in the month of Kislev. That's November or December. What we'll find next week is he doesn't even broach the subject with the king of returning back to Jerusalem until Nisan, which is April. You know how long he prayed? I don't know, four to five months. He's, he's gifted He's like the right-hand man. Why don't you just like, all right, that's a problem. Let's go talk to the king about it. That's what I would have done. What do you think would have happened if he didn't pray and immediately went to pursue the king on this? What would have happened? Who knows? And what do you think God did in Nehemiah's heart in that four months while he was fasting and praying day and night? Do you think Nehemiah came out of that season of prayer a different person? I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And he, God prepared him for the road ahead. So let's just walk through this prayer. Um, I want you to see four things about this prayer. This is how you take responsibility for your future. Man, you get on your knees, friend. And the first thing I want you to see is this prayer is immersed in God. He starts out because he, he reads the Bible. Oh, Lord God of heaven, that's Yahweh. That's the personal name for God given to Israel. The great and awesome God who keeps... This feels... It's covenantal language, but it's also Genesis language. You are creator, king, God. So the first thing that you need is to be overwhelmed with the character of God. So if your prayers are like, hey, it's me again. How you doing? No, there should be a trembling. There should be like, I can't believe the God of the universe 
is, is going to hear my prayer. So there's, you're, you're overwhelmed by the character of God right off the bat. If, if we are self-satisfied, if we are self-important, if we are self-obsessed, if we are self-righteous, and that's our country right now, you don't, God, you're going to be dead to God. He'll be in your circle, but you're not going to really resonate to him personally. So first, immersed in God before self, God's character on display. Secondly, it rolls right into repentance. Why? You can't be impacted by God's character and his majesty and his glory and his name and not say, oh, there's a problem here. And he walks into repentance. He owns it all. The sins of the people of Israel. We have sinned. Even I and my father's house. Before the little. When you repent before the living God, based on his character and what he has said and the promises he's made and Christ, you may come empty-handed, but you do not come uninvited and you stand before him loved. Nehemiah knows this. We should know it better because we have the fullness of Christ. But he gets it, and he repents. He repents before God. Right? Understanding his character and his mercy and his love should draw us in, especially in Christ. So it's immersed in God's character. It rolls straight into repentance. Third, it speaks in the language of Scripture. Do you want to know how to pray? Read the Bible. He prays Scripture. Uh, he prays right, Leviticus 26 and also Deuteronomy 30, verses 2 and 3. I'm just going to read it real quick because you'll understand how similar it is. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from their Lord, your God will gather you. He understands the covenant. He's read the Bible. He knows it inside and out. And when he goes before God, that's what flows out of his mouth. God, you said we know we're in exile. We, were un, we didn't walk in faith with you. But you also said if we return to you and we repent, you will pull us from the outermost of heavens and you will put us right back with you. You said that. I'm calling you on that. And we're repenting. Do that. That's the language of prayer, is scripture. So, and lastly, it's a prayer of belonging. So what, is God gracious and holy and powerful and to be feared, or do you belong to him by grace? Yeah. You don't stand before him on your merits. It's by the mercy of God. You'll never stand before him in your own goodness. It's by the grace of God. Nehemiah somehow knows this because God is gracious in his covenant, and he calls him on it. That is, the, that is the prayer that Nehemiah leaves to us, immersed in God, repentance right into it, language of Scripture, and it's a prayer of belonging. Friends, what are you going to do? Can I just ask you that? What are you going to do with the time that's been given you? It's got to start here. It's got to start with prayer. This is why we're doing Pray 30. This is why we have leaders over prayer. This is why it's the most important thing. Why? Are you going to get God to do what you want? Maybe. Nehemiah does. But it never, 
is in conflict with God's own character, and Nehemiah is fine with that. Are you fine with that? Are you willing to take full responsibility for the future that God has given you starting in this kind of prayer? Because Jesus, friends, he is the endpoint of all these promises, and he takes full responsibility for you. Do you know that? Jesus took full responsibility, not just for you, but your future. How? Well, listen to his prayer, John 17, 5. He's praying to the Father, I pray not that you take them out of this world, but you deliver them from evil. And then Jesus himself goes to the cross and bears the weight of the evil for us personally and overcomes it personally and is the ascended Christ. On station right now, he took responsibility for you. So we can do this. We can do this. We can do this without fear and trembling. We can fear God alone. So take that response. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're like, I don't know. I've never been to church, and I'm just logging into this. Here's where you need to start. You need to repent, and you need to ask for forgiveness, and then receive it and walk in it. And God will give you a new life. It could be worse than the one you have now, but it'll be glorious. And he is coming back. So we walk in that together. Take full responsibility for our future, and it starts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you just don't leave us the hope of Redeemer. You send both the prophets that prophesy of his coming. You send the high priest Jesus himself who becomes our sacrifice and overcomes death and taking full responsibility for the people of God, us. And even now, Lord, you have a future for us, even in the disaster. So we submit to that. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. And we want it. Like Nehemiah, we're going to say we want success. But we want it to be the success that you bring. So we ask this. We pray for your mercy on us as we seek, Lord, to see your kingdom advance. In the name of Jesus, amen.